Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In our episode today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer starts a new mini-series on spiritual gifts. The series is called, Out of Many, One. Did you know that every child of God has a God-given gift? Today's talk is titled, The Greatest Generation. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around to the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin a, another mini-series in this series of series is out of Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, we see right after the formation of the church at Pentecost, we see that God formed the church and he described the different activities of the church. And one of those activities he describes is that the spiritual gifts were being evidenced and used by the people in the early church. And so we begin a series called Out of Many, One. It's the formation of the church because as you read Acts chapter two, you see God take people from just all around the world and he puts them together into a single body. Remember in in Pentecost, we weren't just dealing with the same kind of people. We were talking about people who are uh, from different nations, male and female, different ages. Goodness, I think there's about 17 different languages that were being spoken there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And so this was not naturally a united people. There's very different cultures that are coming together. And yet God takes thousands of people who are from very different backgrounds and he combines them together in a single body and they begin to think and to act as one. And that is the church. It's also the, the dream of, uh, of the American people to be a body that is many different types, but one, if you will, that's the grand American experiment, the melting pot that is the United States. Can we take people from all different races and all different backgrounds, different countries, different ages, male, female, and can we take all these people and put them together and get them to think and to act as one? That was the desire of our founders, certainly. It's why the great seal of the United States reads E Pluribus Unum, right? Out of many, one. And I don't think there's any more time in American history where you can see that the American people were more unified than perhaps those who grew up during the World War II generation, what we call the greatest generation. We're going to learn some lessons, if you will, from the greatest generation. What made them so great? I'll argue that what made them great was that they were willing to work together, everybody doing their part. So we have a video here that we're going to roll to let you hear it directly from those who went through there and were alongside of the greatest generation and listened and saw their example and followed uh, the example that they left for us. World War II, I remember I came from church and there's a little speech shop there and I heard a lot of noise and uh, I went in to see what the commotion was and they was telling me that uh, the Japanese were bombing Pearl Harbor. Was a child during World War II. I was eight when it started and twelve, uh, but I noticed our community worked together. But there was no air conditioning, so when men worked shift work and they had to sleep during the day, of course they slept with their windows open. And as children, we knew where we could play and where we couldn't because we respected them that they had to sleep during the day. There was a lot that. Uh of people that uh, treated things with one another and to help the neighbors. 
I know that uh, during the war, uh, all churches seemed to be that uh, it was important to the people and churches were crowded. We did some drive, I can remember doing 10, 10 cans, like when you opened your vegetables or fruits, you cut both ends out and washed your can and mashed it flat and then packaged them and they would come and, and pick it up. Even the tin foil that was on your chewing gum wrappers, you'd peel it off and make a little tin foil ball and make kind of a game, see who could get the biggest ball <laughs> of tin foil. And then they would come every so often around the neighborhoods and pick up the tin. Also remember that we had victory gardens and back in front of the garage, daddy sped me up a little place where I could put some tomatoes and beans and make a little vegetable garden. And that was a big thing during the war. When I um, joined the Marine Corps, from there I went to boot camp. And uh, I mean, object, I think, of our boot camp was to teach everyone to act as one. And an example of that, uh, I remember one time they uh, put us in a house that had gas in it and uh, the gas had burned their eyes and uh, we had uh, gas masks but we wasn't allowed to put them on. And this one boy's eyes were burning so bad and so forth, whatever, he put his gas mask on. So as soon as that session was over, they marched us out the back door, back around and inside and do it again. Well, at this time, there was a Marine on both sides of that man, grabbed his hand and held him so that we wouldn't have to do it again or to teach him too. If whatever they told you to do, you do. They do this to teach us as one. You do whatever you can and you want to do it together. And I think this is the same thing what God wants us to do. We, as a church and people, ought to try to be one in serving the Lord. I think the patriotism and the, of the country, and the, we, we were one, and, and the respect, I, I still think it stems back to, and the love of God. Well, the main thing I think as a church needs is we need uh, harmony. We need harmony and, like I say, uh, work together. But uh, I think if we got harmony and love, we can accomplish just about anything we set out to do. And there you have it. Several lessons that we can learn from what many people call the greatest generation in the United States. And what made them great was that, if you is, is even just heard their testimony, from the great to the small, you know, you had men who were working, you know, late shifts. You had men who were, you know, they were the one carrying arms into battle. But then you also had people who were smashing tin cans, people who were doing victory gardens, people who were, you know, saving the foil from their gum wrappers. And everybody, from the greatest to the least, served together because there was a common threat that they faced. There was an enemy at their gates, if you will. And so that's what made them great, that from the greatest to the least, everybody did their part and they did it harmoniously. They did it with a willing heart. And so the church has very, a lot that they could learn from the lessons that these people have to teach us. I want you to look in Ephesians chapter four. We're going to be looking at, this mini-series is gonna be on spiritual gifts. This is how we become, uh, we who are many become one. 
we utilize our spiritual gifts. And I don't know how much you know about spiritual gifts, but by the time we're done these next few Sundays, you're gonna know an awful lot. First thing I want you to identify is that every believer has a spiritual gift. So in Ephesians chapter four, we're gonna begin in verse seven, and he says this, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led host, uh, a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, there's a lot of theology in there that we don't have time to get to all of it, but we're gonna focus on the parts that are speaking directly to spiritual gifts. First, he begins by saying that grace has been given to each of us, that believers are not just forgiven, but we're like everybody else. We're converted that Jesus, who lives in our heart, he has given us grace. We've been forgiven in Jesus Christ, but those who have been given the grace of God also possess the gift of God. If today you possess the grace of God, you also possess the gift of God, and you may not even know that you have this latent gift within you. And so he says that when he ascended, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And so what is a spiritual gift? What are these gifts that Jesus gave to everybody? They are a spiritual gift, just if I had to define it, I would say that a spiritual gift is a divine enablement given by the Holy Spirit to equip each believer to serve the body of Christ. A spiritual gift is a divine enablement given by the Holy Spirit to equip each believer to serve the body of Christ. So a, a spiritual gift is not a talent. Uh, we, have, we have lots of talent that we just saw up here today, singing and musical instruments and things. Those are talents and we should use those for the Lord, but those aren't specifically spiritual gifts. Now they may use their spiritual gift in playing those instruments, okay? Uh, but a spiritual gift is a divine enablement. Specifically, these are skills that the Bible has identified as necessary to serve the body of Christ. If, and uh, <clears throat> if you want to study spiritual gifts, there's uh, several passages that you can look at. Uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, your four primary passages that discuss spiritual gifts in length. So while we're looking at Ephesians 4, you don't have to turn there, we'll throw it up on the screen though. We have 1 Peter 4, another one of these spiritual gifts passages. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 11, he says, as each has received a gift, what do you see there? Each has received a gift. If you have the grace of God, what do you also have? The gift of God. And so as each has received a gift, use it. What's he teaching there? If you have a gift, you should be using it in some way. In other words, every believer should be serving in some capacity. Use it, how? To serve myself. That's not what my Bible says. Serve one another as good stewards. Okay, a steward is somebody who owns nothing but is responsible for it. And so where God holds us accountable for how we utilize our spiritual gift, there will be a reckoning and accounting before God. He says that we are to serve one another as good stewards of God's, he says, varied grace. And so grace here, again, he's speaking about grace. He's using it interchangeably here with gifts. It's, it's a varied grace that God gives to us. He doesn't bless us all in the same way. We're not all supposed to be identical. There's unity, not uniformity. And so you have one who serves children and one who speaks, one who greets people in the back and one who cleans the bathroom. Thank God for them. 
And so it's okay that we all serve in different ways because it's a varied grace. Everybody is not supposed to have the same gifting. And so God takes this many, this, this haphazard, you know, scattered group of people of various gifts, and he brings them all together to function as one body. One's a hand, one's a foot, one's a liver, one's a spleen, one's lungs. But we're all connected to the head, and through his Holy Spirit, he directs us to move together as a single body out of many, one. And then he gives us kind of a broad categorization of gifts. He splits gifts roughly up into these two broad categories. He refers to speaking and serving gifts. See if you can see it. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. So if you have a speaking gift, uh, preaching, teaching, leading, administrating, or organizing humans, he says, when you use your gift, make sure you're doing it according to the oracles of God. An oracle is an authority, it's a source. And so when we teach and preach, it shouldn't be our own opinions, shouldn't be our own thoughts and ideas. Everything needs to be in accordance with the word of God. And so he says, whoever serves, there's your other category, make sure you do it as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In other words, servants, you're gonna see a lot of needs in this church, you can't do everything. I know some of you guys, if we let you, you would but you've got to do it according to the strength that God supplies in order that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And there's a third broad category of spiritual gifts not mentioned here. In fact, it's only mentioned in one of the four spiritual gifts passages, the earliest of the spiritual gifts passages, and those are the sign gifts, okay? It's only in the earliest passages uh, because even in the New Testament, sign gifts were on the decline because God never intended us to live by sign gifts. Now, that may surprise you if you're watching TBN or some of these other things that try to make it sound like miracles are supposed to be normal things that happen all the time within the church, and it always has been. Can I tell you, there's only three periods in Earth's history where God gave man the ability to do miraculous things, and they all, we'll we'll talk about this more another time, they all corresponded to times when God was giving new scripture. Why? Because if somebody comes out here and tells you, hey, I've got book book, 67, 68, 69, What are we gonna do with that person? We're not gonna listen to them, why? Because they're not from God. They don't even have the the sign gifts that authenticate you. And that was the purpose of the sign gifts, to authenticate a messenger is coming from God. They now have the authority to give you new scripture. Okay, and that's what Paul was referring to in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. He says, the signs of a true apostle, there were a lot of false ones. He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. How can we tell who the true apostles were? He says, I did them many signs and wonders and mighty works. Okay, so this week we're gonna talk briefly on speaking gifts. Next week we're gonna talk about serving gifts, which is most of us. And then after that, we're going to talk about sign gifts. How do we understand all of these things that people either claim to have or you've had some experience? How do we interpret those through scripture? So we'll talk about all of these at some point in time. Now, verse 16 of Ephesians chapter four says, we are to operate as a whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. There's the key. The Bible calls you and I together as we're assembled in this large gathering. We form a body of Christ. And so God has drawn and gifted certain people in this room to do certain things. And we're supposed to work together as a single unit to work together, as Fred said, harmoniously, that we're to, each one of us doing our part, whether it's a little part, you know, you're, you're making foil balls out of your gum wrappers, you know, or you're doing a big part, you're carrying guns and you're, you're charging the front lines. 
Everybody does their part. That's what makes us strong. He says, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. By the way, you're gonna find that that's a motif of all the spiritual gift passages, is love. Look at all four of them. Either before, after, or before and after, it talks about love because it identifies, hey, there's a lot of differences between you and I. We don't look alike, we don't think alike, uh, we don't all have the same spiritual giftings, we don't all agree on everything, but we can still be unified. That's what the Bible is trying to say. And what is that unifying element? It's love. And we'll talk about that at the end of our spiritual gifts uh, study here. So in Ephesians 4, he says we're to operate as one body. And then he says to do so, we've been given gifts to serve one another. These spiritual gifts aren't something that God just gives us so that we can go home and feel blessed. These are gifts that God gives us the ability to serve others better. It's sort of like getting a vacuum for Christmas. Ladies, any of you get one of those? You know, they're not usually begging for vacuums for Christmas, at least my family doesn't. But getting a vacuum for Christmas, what it is is you're getting a gift that can be, make your life easier as you serve other people, which is why you'd probably rather have you know, a new necklace or something. But that's essentially what a spiritual gift is. And if you feel slighted that that's what a spiritual gift is, psh, God gave me a gift so I can serve other people. I wanted something for myself. If that is your spirit and attitude today, it may be that you're in a transactional relationship with God. I follow God because of what he can give me. I follow God so I can get out of hell. I come to church uh, because I make friends. I come to church because there's good business contacts here. I come to church to be blessed by the beautiful music here. We may be in a transactional relationship with God. We just treat the church like Walmart or a barbecue joint. And we go there as long as it meets my needs. But what are we supposed to do? We are stewards of God's varied grace that we are actually to come to church with the idea of what can I contribute here? I see weaknesses that are here, but I have strengths that I can help fill some of those weaknesses. And so the Bible, Bible describes us as various body parts because we have a certain gift that God intends for us to use. And by the way, can I tell you, because God made you this way, because God gave you grace, he gave you a gift, you will never be completely happy in Christ until you are utilizing that gift. You're never going to enjoy church the way you're supposed to unless you're actually serving the church. I wanna read for you a couple lines of a famous poetic verse. It goes like this, it says, life is so unnerving for a servant who is not serving. Some of you are already there. He's not whole without a soul to wait upon. Ah, oh, those good old days when we were useful. Who is that, Thoreau? Is it Emerson? Who'd I quote here? It's be our guest from Beauty and the Beast. You've seen that, okay? What do you have, Beauty and the Beast, when they're all singing that song? Be our guest, and then you know, all of a sudden the plates and the dishes, they're dancing and singing. How does that story go? Okay, you got all these, these dishes, you got these plates, you got these cupboards, you got a candlestick and some clock, and, and when we first see them in the story, they're not having a good time, are they? The place is dingy and dull, and it's just very just solemn, you know? kind of like some churches. And uh, you know, it's just a solemn place. And they're not doing anything. Are they happy? I mean, they're in the house of the king, but are they happy? No, they're miserable. They're bored. Why? Because they're supposed to be serving. The purpose that they were, they were created, the thing they were created to do, they aren't able to do. And so it's just this gloomy, sad existence. And you have clocks and candlesticks fighting each other. And they're always mad and they're angry. And, it's because they're not serving. When, is, when does the story pivot? 
It's when you have an outsider come into the house of the king. And now the king's people start to use their gifts. And it's like, okay, well, the stove starts cooking up stuff and, you know, the candlesticks lighten things up and, and the, the plates and the dishes, they start dancing and silverware start dancing. And what do they do? For the first time in many years, they start singing once again. Why do they have joy? Because they're able to do the thing that, that, if you will, the king made them to do. They're serving once again. Our king has given us certain gifts that we are supposed to be using, but there are some people here, like at the beginning of the Beauty and the Beast, and we're, just, we're in the king's house, but we're not doing anything. We're not serving the king. We're not, we're not bringing in people from the outside to use our gifts, to, to lavish our gifts upon, and we're miserable, and we're sad, and if we're not careful, we'll be like the clock and the candlestick that are fighting each other because we're meant to be serving. It's what we were built to do. So maybe if you're bored and unhappy in the church, can I just challenge you? Try to find a meaningful place of service and you might discover that you'll get your song back too. Ephesians 4 says that Christ descended into the lower parts of the earth. By the way, that doesn't mean that he went to hell. We're just talking about the fact that Christ died. It says that Christ died and he rose again so that he might fill all things. What that means is that Jesus wants to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Back in the Old Testament, they weren't permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit like we are today, but that's another sermon for another day. We have the Holy Spirit within us, the very Spirit of Christ who is motivating us to do the work of Christ. This is what Jesus promised would happen in John 14, 12. Don't worry, it's not on the slides here, but I'll read it for you. In John 14, 12, Jesus is about to leave earth and he tells his, his disciples this, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Not all of his sign gifts and things, but they'll do the work that Jesus is doing, which is primarily to proclaim the kingdom. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Jesus says, you think it's great that we have myself out here and I'm proclaiming the kingdom? You just wait, when I die and I ascend and go into heaven, now I'm able to distribute myself through thousands, even millions of people, and they're going to be proclaiming the message of the kingdom as well. And so we will do greater works. That doesn't mean better works. This particular Greek word means like greater than, less than. It means in number. That it won't just be one Jesus proclaiming the kingdom. It will be thousands. It will be a, a countless multitude of people proclaiming the same message that Jesus did. They will do greater works. Jesus left this earth so that his work will continue on in us. If you will, Jesus may have died and rose again and, and went to be with the Father, but he's hoping that you and I as individual believers, we will carry on the family business. That's why he left us here. Galatians 6, three through five even says this. If anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, well, that's depressing, um, but it's true. It says he deceives himself. When we are high-minded and we're proud people and we think that the church is primarily here to serve me, not for me to serve the church, I'm a high-minded individual, the Bible says you're self-deceived. You don't understand who you are and who God is yet. He says, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load. The first thing he says there is for the church to be able to work together as one out of many one, we have to be harmonious. Harmony comes from the state of having a lot of humble people together, people who aren't high-minded, people who don't just try to demand their own way and want everything exactly like they want it. Harmony comes from humility. When, you know, I'm like, no, 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 we defer to one another. We talked last week or the other week about being yielding. 
When we're humble people and we realize that we serve a great God and that relative to God, I'm, I'm nothing compared to him. The most important thing is not that I get what I want, but that God is glorified, that he's pleased with what we do. And then the second greatest commandment of the Bible, outside of love the Lord God with all your heart, is to love your neighbor as yourself. When we can get those laws in order and in priority, we're going to discover that the church will behave in a humble, unified, and if, if you will, a powerful way. And so, <clears throat> 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's why it's so important that we are a humble people. What does God do with the proud here? What did it say? He opposes them, okay? I want you to picture football teams opposing each other, okay? My goal on this defensive line is to stop you. It's to prevent you from moving forward. It's like you have these military lines with this shield wall. Our goal is to prevent you from getting past us says God lines up in battle against the church who is proud. The church where the individuals all each want what they all want individually and we all just fight and pick and bicker with one another to get our own way. God says he opposes that kind of church. But God gives grace and God works mightily through the gifts of the people through, through what kind of church? Humble people. People who are willing to put God first and others before myself. God says he's gonna work in a mighty way. He says, while we're doing that, we should all test our own work. This is a word that means to prove the worthiness of. We're supposed to not examine what other people are doing. What are you doing back there? What are you doing for service? What are you doing for God? Why aren't you doing as much as I am? The Bible says we are to test our own work, not others, but our own. And we're supposed to see, am I living up to the full potential of what God has put within me? Or is it possible that God might want to do a whole lot more through me than what I'm allowing him to do right now? So we are to test our own work. Ask ourselves the question, if every Christian were as active as I am at Unity Baptist Church, how strong would Unity Baptist Church be? Now granted, we're not all supposed to work in the same way, but we all do something. That's the point of Galatians 6. He says, let every man bear his own, what does your Bible say? Load. Let every man each will have to bear his own load. It's that Greek word, portion. Sounds like what word? Portion. Okay, God has apportioned to each one of us a certain measure of work that God wants to do here on earth. Every believer, God has a portion that he's counting on you individually to do. Now, it's not all gonna be the same. Some people are gonna carry a small load, some people a big load. You know, we had some flooding in the church this last week. It's why the, uh, the, the church has this sort of lovely, lovely kind of musky odor to it this morning. Maybe you noticed it. Uh, we had some flooding and things. Imagine the church gets all flooded and we're gonna move this place. We're not gonna ask our prime timers to move out these big, heavy, long pews, are we? That'd be kind of rude to say, well, I'm doing it, so maybe you should do it. I don't care that you're 95, you know, get your back behind it. You know, and that's, you know, sometimes we feel that way in the church. Why aren't they serving like I do? But they do have a portion. It doesn't mean that they, that our prime timers, they just go off and sit and wait. Well, you ought to serve me. They find their own portion. So instead we might be like, hey, you know, can you carry some of these hymnals? You can carry a few hymnals. Uh, maybe you can go make lunch for people. Maybe you can help organize things. Now we need to move these pews out. What are we gonna do? We're gonna get some of our big guys. We're gonna get Brad and Eli and some of these other, you know, and Joe and some, some of these big guys, you know, they just kind of put their muscles up underneath it. Why should I have to carry all the heavy stuff? It's because you're a big guy, okay? I mean, it's that simple. That's the load that you need to bear because these guys can't. 
But it doesn't mean those who can't carry pews don't still have a load. We all do something. And so we have people in this church, and you teach, some people play music, some people teach children, some of you clean and organize things. All of those are equally valid and important ways to serve God. God is not more pleased or less pleased with you than any other usage of a spiritual gift. They're all important. But the, the, the key takeaway here is that all of us have a portion. Every believer has a portion, something God expects us to do or to use in serving him. So in Ephesians 4, I told you we're going to look at the categories of spiritual gifts. We're going to look at speaking gifts today. So in Ephesians 4, go ahead, hopefully you're already there. And in verse 11, he's going to give us a list of several of uh, what would be categorized as speaking gifts. It says, he gave, some, he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers. So he gives us a list here of several different speaking gifts. These are, a speaking gift are those gifts which help communicate the word of God. They instruct and equip the people of God. They're organizing the people of God so that we can move together as one body. That's the primary purpose of a speaking gift. Uh, they tend to be the more visible gifts. They're the people that you tend to know more often in church because they're either up here preaching or teaching or leading or guiding. They're the ones calling you and organizing you. Those are our speaking gifts gifts. Now, I want you to understand this too. As we study spiritual gifts, there's none of these four spiritual gifts passages that all match up. There is no one complete list of all the spiritual gifts. They all differ in the gifts that they mention. Why? Because the most important thing about studying spiritual gifts is not that you understand what all the possible permutations are, all the different gifts. The important thing to know is that you all have been gifted and so find the areas that God wants to use you to serve in and serve. Generally, I tell people, one of the best ways to discover your spiritual gifting is, what do you, what do you see in the church that's most important? Chances are, if you see it's important, it's because God put a gift in you for you to do something about it. What do you see in the church that is one of our greatest needs? It's probably because your spiritual gift is crying out that somebody does something about that. What are those areas of the church that when you serve, you enjoy it, you feel fulfilled in doing it? That's probably your, an area of your gifting. That when you do it, other people look at you and they notice and they go, wow, you're so gifted in that. I'm so blessed by what you do. You're successful in the exercise of that gift. Those are some of the best ways to find out where you're gifted. Not that spiritual gift inventories are wrong, but they're only a general guideline. The important thing is that we all have a portion something that God has given for us to do. So here at Speaking Gifts, we're gonna describe what some of these are, and you can kind of get an idea if God has gifted you more toward speaking or serving gifts. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a hint. Most people in the church tend to find their place in the service category, which is not a lesser category than speaking gifts. But I'm gonna explain some of these. It says he gave some apostles. Apostello, it's just a word that means a sent out one. When we think of apostle, what comes to your mind? probably the 12, Jesus apostles, okay? So we have the 12, they are sent out from Jesus. When you have somebody who is an apostle, a sent out one, it means you carry the power and authority of that individual. Before Jesus sent his disciples out, Matthew 28, he says, all authority has been given unto me and I'm sending you out. So we're going out under the authority of Christ. So an apostle of Jesus Christ is somebody who goes out into the world with the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. And the 12 did demonstrate the power and authority of Jesus, didn't they? Like, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were done among you with signs and wonders and mighty works, just like Jesus did. Do we have any more apostles of Jesus Christ today? No, we don't. 
Because if you did, you would be on every YouTube video because you're raising people from the dead. Lame people are able to walk again. Instantaneous and full healing. That would make every news station on the planet. People being raised from the dead, that would make every news station on the planet. No, we don't have apostles today. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 1, 20 to 22, it gives us the qualifications. If you're gonna be an apostle of Jesus, here's what you gotta look like. Remember, Judas, one of Jesus' apostles didn't really turn out too well and they had to get rid of him, and he got rid of himself. And then they, had, they were looking for a placement, and here's the qualifications of an apostle of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 20, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness unto his resurrection. So if we have somebody who claims to be an apostle of Jesus Christ today with his power and authority, what are you gonna do first? You're gonna look at his birth certificate because he's gonna look like Yoda. He's gonna be ancient. He's gonna be old because he's been around. Now, some of you guys are, are aged ones and we respect you and we're glad you're here. But I don't think anybody was here during the time of Jesus. And so it's if physically impossible for you to have been selected by Jesus and to follow Jesus and to see his works that he did. We don't have apostles of Jesus with his power and authority and the ability to write new scripture. That's why the Bible was completed when the last apostle of Jesus Christ died. John on the Isle of Patmos when he was exiled there. When John died, scripture's done. We have no more apostles of Jesus. However, I just want to point this out to you so it doesn't confuse you when you do see it. There are other people in the Bible called apostles outside of the apostles of Jesus. How can that be? Okay, we have Barnabas is called an apostle in Acts 13.2 and 14.4. Andronicus and Junia are identified by many theologians as apostles in Romans 16.7. The same Greek word for apostle is also used to describe Titus, 2 Corinthians 8.23, and Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.25. How can that be? I thought you said there are no more apostles of Jesus outside of these fellows. You need to understand that an apostle is in that gifting. It just means a sent out one. Somebody who goes out under the authority and the power of another. Whenever the church lays hands on somebody and sends them out, they're going out with the power and authority that the church has been vested with. Now, we don't call them apostles today because that would get confusing. What kind of people do we lay hands on and send out from the church to do work on our behalf? Missionaries? maybe church planters, people like that. And so in that sense, they are exercising an apostolic gift, but they are not apostles of Jesus Christ. They weren't sent out by Jesus with his power and authority to write new scripture and do miraculous deeds. So we just call them missionaries and things um, so we don't confuse or muddy the waters. Then he says he gave prophets. A prophet is somebody, it literally means to proclaim divine counsels. It means that God has a, a body of truth that he has delivered to mankind and these prophets would proclaim it. Now, some preachers will try to tell you that a true prophet is somebody who is giving real-time prophecies from God and has a direct link there and God is in real time speaking through him. But can I tell you that even the apostles of the Old Testament, this was not typically the case. God would give them a message and then he would say, now go and take that message to these people, and he would proclaim a message that God gave them previously, and they as a prophet would proclaim, and the goal of the prophet was not typically to tell the future. What did most prophets do in the Old Testament? They were calling the people to repentance. You're not living like you should. God's gonna bring judgment. You know, come back to God. And that's how prophets use their gift. They're proclaiming divine counsels. They're proclaiming the word of God. In a very real sense, we do that every time we preach the Bible. We are 
prophesying. We are taking this book of prophecy, 2 Peter 1 calls this a book of prophecy. Anytime we proclaim the words of this book, we are exercising a prophetic gift. I'm not claiming, by the way, that I can tell the future or that I get new words from God. I don't. But just like the Puritans used to call, uh, they used to equate the two terms, that prophecy is the proclamation of a divine revelation. God didn't give this to me directly, but he gave it to all of us to proclaim. And so in that sense, we are proclaiming and prophesying a divine word. Now, why don't we get new prophecies today? And by the way, we don't. Always beware of somebody who says, you know, God told me this and you need to obey it because God told me. The Bible nowhere tells us that we need to be getting new words from God. In fact, we have a lot of verses that say the other, that we shouldn't be adding to the words of this book, Revelation, right? And, we, and the Bible tells us that the Bible itself is complete in and of itself. 2 Peter 1, 3-4 says that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, everything that we need for living, everything that we need for the church. The Bible says God has given to it given us that already, it says through his precious and very great promises. Everything we need in life is right here. I mean, you know what 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 was saying too? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, of righteousness. Why? So that the man of God might be perfect, complete. And it says thoroughly equipped for every good work. What do we need to be complete as a Christian in Christ? Do I need a new word from God? No, what I need is all scripture. And so the Bible, this is what we, what we call the sufficiency of scripture. Everything that a believer needs today, we don't need a new word from God, we just need to obey the old one. We just need to be reminded of what God has already said. Then he mentions evangelists. Now when I say an evangelist, what comes to your mind? Let me just think a little bit. Evangelist. If you're like me, I'm thinking, uh, I don't know, giant tent in the middle of the summer, some guy who's still wearing a coat and tie in the middle of the summer, and he's kicking and screaming, and, you know, he's moving around, he's shouting, he's sweating, you know, and he's just, he's getting all angry, and he's, like, foaming at the mouth. Uh, Or like when I was a child, we'd have evangelists. They would come visit our church. They were essentially itinerant preachers. And usually, at least when I was a kid, they were almost a variety show. You know, his wife would come out and she would start playing a saw. What is that? You know, it's evangelist. He's here today. You know, and he would have like a squeaky the mouse, some ventriloquist guy, you know. And, And the lady, she would play piano and the cowbells at the same time with a trumpet. I don't even know how that worked, but like she's like, ding, 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 ding. And I I couldn't help but think as a kid, if there's anybody who came here to hear the gospel and saw that, they'd probably walk out going, what did I just see here? You know, but sometimes we think of evangelists and that's what comes to mind is this like guy foaming at the mouth and screaming or some bizarre Christian variety show that travels to churches. Can I tell you biblically, we got it wrong. There is no such office of that anywhere in the Bible. What's an evangelist? I mean, if you think about it, an evangelist is somebody who's gifted in, surprisingly, evangelism. A lot of times these people would be itinerant preachers and they'd preach at your church, but they don't go out in your community. They don't do any evangelism. They don't even train you how to do evangelism. But somehow what they're doing is evangelism. No, an evangelist is somebody who's gifted in evangelism and they don't travel from church to church. They're in every church. And they remain in these churches. They are leading and guiding by example and by word how to do evangelism in your community. If I were to ask you who are the evangelists in this church, you probably already know. 
they're usually pretty visible and obvious. You know, they're just all, we just need to get out there with the gospel. Those people are dying and going to hell. We got to get out there with the gospel. They're evangelists. They may not be paid full time to be that, but that is their gifting. And so they are leading by example. They're participating in evangelistic outreach events like our Impact Weekend coming up. They're guiding you and helping you to how you can be an evangelist. This is what a biblical evangelist is. And then he mentions shepherds. This is pretty clear. A shepherd is somebody who shepherds the flock. Usually we think of them as being a pastor. Okay, it's somebody who feeds the sheep. You know, they protect the sheep. They correct the sheep at times. They lead the sheep. they're, They're guiding them with that gentle crook, not with the bat. Okay, we don't lead the sheep like that. But we guide them gently. That's somebody who's gifted in shepherding. Now, I don't want you to be scared if you take one of these spiritual gift inventories. Maybe you're a, you're a lady out there and it says, I've got the gift of shepherding. Ah, it's telling me I should be a pastor. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about that you have a gifting, not necessarily the office of, but a gift that you can come alongside people. Maybe you'd be great as a counselor or maybe you would be great in, uh, as a community group leader or something, okay? You're good at, at, at feeding, protecting, and helping guide people. And the last role here he mentions is a teacher. Now, how does preaching and teaching really differ from one another? And trust me, there is a big difference between, in in my opinion, in preaching and teaching. There's a couple of different Greek words that are used in the Bible. The Greek word for preaching is kerygma in the Bible. It means to proclaim, okay? You're announcing. You know, a long time ago, before we had newspapers and internet and evening news, how did people find out what was going on in the community? the king would have a special town crier and he would take not his own message, but the message of the king. And he would stand out at a certain place at a certain time, ding, 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 hear ye, hear ye, you know, and here's what, here's what you need to know. And that's what they did. And that he's proclaiming not his own message, but the king's, and he's doing it at a certain place, at a certain time, communicating to you everything the king wants you to know. And that's what a town crier did. That's kerygma. Okay, but there's another word for teaching. It's not that. It's not just one directional here. It's, it's the word didasco. It's from the word didache, which means to have a discourse. It's a conversation. That's where, teaching, that's where teaching and preaching really differs, is that with preaching, it's very one directional. I'm a town crier. Ding, 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 ding. You need to hear this from the king. But what does a teacher do? He doesn't do that. A teacher, they will give you instruction, but then what are they going to do? They're going to invite you into the conversation, won't they? A good teacher will. And they're gonna, a good teacher is usually fantastic with asking questions. They're gonna invite you to try to discover truth for yourselves. They wanna hear from you. It's sort of like if you go to college, some of you may have just relaunched your kids back into college, and they're gonna go in some of their classes, they're gonna have a professor where there's, he's, he's doing kerygma, okay? He's just proclaiming, doing a lecture to maybe 120 students. Very minimal, if any, interaction. He's just uploading information into the students' heads. But then outside of that, sometimes we also in college have a tutor. It's somebody who will come alongside you in a small group, maybe even one-on-one, and you're having a conversation. They'll give you a little bit of instruction. They'll invite you in. Well, what do you think that means? Why do you think he did that? How do I arrive at this conclusion? What do you think your mistake was? And that is a teacher. You're interacting. It's a, it's a discourse. It's back and forth. And so if you're a teacher today, can I encourage you, don't just be a proclaimer. Don't just preach. Don't be one-directional. But invite the students into a conversation. Help them discover truth for themselves. 
Help the, ask questions to get them involved in the text. Don't just make them sit there and snooze and check their watch while you do all the talking. You know, talk to them. And if you want more instruction on how to do that, Brad is your man. And you need to come to his, uh, his community group leader trainings that he has. Heard fantastic reports about the last one, by the way. And so be a part of that. And he's gonna show you how to be a better teacher. So these are the upfront kind of gifts that you see. These are just a few examples of them. But what's the purpose of these speaking gifts? We'll find that in verse 12. He says, God gave speaking gifts to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. These, these speaking gifts that he just mentioned, their primary goal is to equip who? The saints. Who are saints? Are you a saint? Sit next to your wife, is, is your husband a saint? Okay, what is a saint? You know, if, if you're relying upon what some people define saint, like in the Catholic Church, you've got all of us, we're like JV Christians down here. We're just kind of the rabble, you know, but then once in a while, you'll get some really committed godly person and we will give them sainthood and they're like sort of like varsity Hall of Fame Christian. Is that what a saint is? It's not, by the way. Saint is just, it's a it's sort of a noun form of sanctify, You've been set apart by God. If you are saved today, can I tell you, even though you may not feel like it, wives, even if our husbands don't act like it, they are saints. They truly are. A saint is every believer in Jesus Christ who's been converted and transformed by him. Paul would always write to the churches, and how did he begin his New Testament letters? To the saints at Colossae, I write. To the saints at Galatia, I write. To the saints, he even said to the saints at Corinth. Now, Corinth was a filthy, dirty church doing all kinds of things. He said even lost people won't do, and Paul still wrote to them as saints because he's writing to them according to their spiritual identity before God. They're all saints. And so he says the job of those with speaking gifts is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Who does the work of the ministry? The saints. All believers. Now, in weak churches, they have the idea that, well, we hire people to do the work of the ministry for us. The pastors and us and so and all these guys, they do the work of the ministry. Can I tell you, biblically speaking, their primary role is, yes, to do ministry, but what is their ministry? To equip the saints. Who's that? All of us. It's to equip the saints, to give you the tools and the direction that you need to help you get on board with the mission of God. That's what speaking gifts do. They organize, equip, train, and prepare the saints to do the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. What's our end goal? It's verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. By the way, when speaking gifts are doing their job well, the church will become increasingly unified and around our faith. To the, of the knowledge of the Son of God, he says, to mature manhood. That's what we're trying to get for all saints. We're trying to help every saint to become mature in Christ. You say, well, I'm already mature in Christ. What level of maturity are we looking for? He says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Would any of you stand here and say you're so mature that you have attained to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ? Are you there yet? Please raise your hand that we may tithe to you. You know, I mean, there's none of us who are there. We all have maturing that we need to do, including those exercising speaking gifts. That's the goal. He says, so that we will no longer be children. 
I know in today's culture, it's really popular to try to return to our childhood. You know, God doesn't intend that for his believers though. We're not supposed to celebrate our childhood. We're supposed to enjoy it for what it was, but now we're supposed to be adults. As a child, sometimes we wanna to return to our childhood because that's a period of time where nobody expected anything of us. It was back when you can get up and watch Saturday morning cartoons, eat your cereal bowl, and leave your cereal bowl for mom to clean. God doesn't want us to stay children where we just come to church and absorb. By the way, that's how you know if you're a child or an adult. Children don't serve. Children are served. One of, the, one of the measures of your maturity is that you are using your spiritual gift. You're giving back to God. You're active in this church. You're doing something. Children want to be served. What do, what do mature adults want to do? They want to give. Until we get to the, the fullness of the stature of Christ, what was Christ doing? Philippians 2, he came to earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're never more like Jesus than when we're giving up our life for other people. And that's the life to which Jesus is calling every one of us. He says, so that we don't be like children anymore, tossed to and fro by waves carried around by every wind of doctrine, that there's always false teachings swirling around in the world and immature baby Christians, they can't identify it. You read some crazy book about how some guy spent 29 minutes in heaven. You're like, wow, I didn't even know all this. He didn't spend time in heaven. The Bible says it's appointed to man to die once and then the judgment. There's nobody who's been to heaven and back. But you wouldn't know that if you're a child. Because our children, we have to protect and guard them because if we're not careful, our children is gonna follow the first guy with a bag of candy into the back of his van to look for his dog. And there's Christians out there who are just that gullible because they don't know their Bibles. Speaking gifts help equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to prepare them so that they're not tossed to and fro like that. And so the Bible is calling speaking gifts to help prepare and train all of us to be doing our part to work together, to serve together, just like what we saw here about those who grew up during World War II. Everybody does a little bit of something. Everybody does their part. And when we do that, we become mighty and strong. Can I briefly, in closing, just show with you, share with you, here's how you can be more involved in a church. We value clear communication as a church, and so we've got a graphic here we wanna throw up here. You've probably seen it before. It's called, we call it the unity funnel. Don't know if you can read that back there or not. Uh, but in this unity funnel, the idea is that we all begin up at this top part, just big church. That's what we're doing right now. And it's, it's great, and it's fun to come together and listen to the music and sing together and rejoice and fellowship together and study the Word of God together, but that isn't where God intends for us to remain our whole life. At some point in time, God wants us to be going deeper with one another. Paul said in Acts 20, 20, I taught you both publicly, right here, and from house to house, smaller groups. And so that leads us to community groups. We want everybody to, be, uh, to go from not just big church where you may feel kind of lost in the crowd here. We want you to get into a smaller group where the church feels small once again. And so you have these community groups of eight, 10, 12 people, 15 people maybe. And you, we divide you up by age and stage of life so that you can make friendships so that you can grow together with that group of people and address the needs of that particular generation. Some even do missions projects and things together. If you're not in a community group, can I just beg of you, go out to the starting point desk, and that's our desk out there in the lobby. Go out to our starting point desk and say, hey, I'd like to get involved in a community group. How can I figure out how to get connected to one? And they'll help you. From there, though, we have something we call D-groups. 
A D group is nothing like a Sunday school. Sunday schools are supposed to be a little bit larger. By the way, if you're part of a teeny tiny school, Sunday school, can I encourage you maybe to consider moving together with other classes so that you can have a larger group so you can do what a community group is supposed to. I would encourage you toward that. But D groups are meant to be small groups that are made there to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's where you get equipped. You may come to a community group and depending on your community group, you may spend the first 20 minutes just talking about prayer requests. I don't know, some that I've been in did that. And, and they just talk and they don't, and, and oh, we got 15 minutes, let's hurry, let's get through our lesson. If you wanna be equipped for the work of the ministry, let me tell you, come to a D group. It will transform your life. In coming weeks, we're gonna have some testimonies of some people of how D groups has changed their life. If you wanna be equipped, you wanna know how to study the Bible, you wanna know how to pray, you wanna know how to make godly and wise decisions, you wanna know how to interpret the Bible, you wanna know what your spiritual gifting is and how to be better involved, you wanna know how to share the gospel with people, how to, all the practical how-tos of the Christian life, D groups. If you're not in one, where could you go to find out how to get into a D group? It's a starting point desk again. That's, that's your central repository of how to get involved and go down the funnel a little bit deeper, okay? And through those D groups, our goal is that through big church and community groups and D groups, that ultimately everybody will get to a place of ministry, and that's what leads Unity Baptist Church to being Unity Baptist Church, is that all of us are each doing the part, the portion that God has given to each of us, taking a, a, a note from the pages of the greatest generation. What made them great? I wonder sometimes, did the greatest generation understand at that time that they were the greatest generation? I don't think they did. I think they were just doing their part. They didn't even realize how great it was to see people that unified working together toward a common goal. I wonder sometimes as people look at church history, and by the way, church history is still being written. People are gonna talk about us one day. How are they gonna remember this generation? How are they gonna remember this church? Are they gonna remember us for our building? Are they gonna remember that we've just been here a long time? Are they gonna remember us for all the programs and activities that we traditionally do? Or are they gonna remember Unity Baptist Church is living up to its name, being a unified body out of many one, where we all come together and everybody does their portion to make this church a vibrant and growing and a harmonious environment and just perhaps maybe they might look back at some of us and the work that we're doing someday and say, wow, that's a generation I wanna be like. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much today that you have given us an example from your word as to how uh, we might be involved in the, the greatest work, to be a part of what your kingdom is doing, to be part of something that's eternal, not something that's temporary, that's gonna disappear one day. Lord, I'd like to give thanks for our spiritual gifts, that you didn't just save us and just leave us to sit in the house of the king, but that you have called every one of us to activate, to bring in new people from the outside, to minister to their needs, to utilize our spiritual gift, big or small, whatever portion we play. But God, I thank you that we can be an active role, an active part of the work that you're doing here on earth, that we can be part of something that is eternal, that will long outlast anything else that we do in this life. God, we don't care so much if another generation calls us a great generation or not. We care that you call us, uh, call the work that we do great. We care that you someday, we will stand before you and that you will tell us, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, unify us as, despite being many, unify us into one body. Help each one of us see and identify what our gifting is so that we can 
utilize our strengths and uh, gifts that you have given to us to glorify Jesus, to reach a lost world, and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, click on the link in the show notes, and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland.